Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a wonderful day. This is Paige. Here's my coffee. And we're going to do some little chatting about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is an exciting chapter for me. Paul has, uh, this is the dividing point where Paul gets into teaching mode. The first three chapters, he primarily dealt with explaining why he was absent and how concerned he was. And you could see Paul's concern about wondering whether his efforts in Thessalonica were for naught. Um, And he was hoping that the persecution that surrounded him hadn't buried them. And Timothy comes back with a report and says, nope, everybody's fine. And they love you and they miss you. So, Timothy obviously brings back some questions, and Paul's going to answer those questions. But first, before we do that, uh, I'm going to draw upon my teacher's hat here for a second. And I'm going to imagine that I'm Paul, don't I wish, and that I had spent some extended time with the Thessalonians. And upon establishing God's word there and gaining some converts, what, what would I teach them? What would I teach a primarily Gentile audience uh, if I had six to eight months or a year with them? And you have to realize the heart of this movement, the way, as it was called, was the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, uh, the books of Moses, the law, and the prophets. That's the foundation and the basis from which Paul would teach. So what would he teach? How would he teach that to a primarily Gentile audience who had not grown up with a familiarity with the Torah? Well, if I were that teacher, I would start from the beginning and I would go straight through to the end, but I would highlight and emphasize how Jesus is contained within the words of the Torah. I would point everything to Messiah, why he had to die for us, why he had to repair the breach between man and God, how he did it, and now that that breach has been repaired, how do we respond to that? Basically, it would be a how do we then live kind of thing. Now, you have to realize James had already written his letter at this time. I don't know if Paul would use James's letter but there's some very common themes throughout all of this. Now, that's what I would do. I would present a very practical, this is how we then live. And, and Paul starts off by doing exactly that. He reminds them of what he taught. So let's get started. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. All right, he just got done thanking God that they're still strong in him, in the Lord. And he says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. All right, what are these instructions? Glad you asked. Paul's about to tell him. Do you remember when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was? He says, oh yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these, 
all the other laws hang. I think Paul would probably focus on the Ten Commandments, the law given to Moses. That's the core and heart and soul of a godly believer's life. So take a look at these. What are they? Uh, I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other strange gods before me. You won't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember to keep your Lord, the holy the Lord's day. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie to your neighbor. Don't cover your neighbor's wife. Don't cover your neighbor's goods. The first three deal with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The last seven deal with loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, I heard an old rabbi say once that he reads the Ten Commandments in this manner. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. Therefore, if I am truly the Lord your God, and we have relationship, you and I, as a result, you won't take my name in vain. As a result, you remember my holy day, my Sabbath. If I am truly the Lord your God and we have relationship, you and I, you will honor your father and mother. You won't kill. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. He looked at the Ten Commandments as uh, an if-then. If we have relationship, you and I, the Lord speaking, then these things will happen. These things spring out of a relationship of a person devoted to God. Much like uh, a husband's actions based upon his love for his wife or a wife's action based upon the love of her husband. If my wife and I truly love each other and we have a relationship, she and I, then I will treat her this way. Our actions spring from our connections. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. And Paul kind of goes there. And But he, he slants it to really marry up with uh, his Greco-Roman uh, audience and their culture. And it starts off here. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. Now that means set apart. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Now in that culture... Sexual morality was very, very loose. Um, it wasn't considered a terrible thing for a man to stop off at a temple on the way home and visit the temple prostitutes. It wasn't considered an incredibly ugly thing for a man to uh, have relations with other women or men, women to have other relations with other men. But Paul is saying, Avoid sexual immorality. This is what God wants you to do. And you can see it in these Ten Commandments. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Now he's talking about brother or sister in the sense of the fellowship. In other words, he says, don't defile, don't be sexually immoral with brothers and sisters in the fellowship. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. Even if you're a believer, you will not escape punishment 
as we told you and warned you before. Because God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being. He rejects God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So in his first instruction, as you're reminding them of, he's telling them he really hits hard in this sexual immorality and sexual impurity. We should be sanctified, set apart, pulled apart from the rest of the world who's living that way. Now, goes on numbered verse 9. Now, about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God how to love each other. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. All right, he's telling him basically, be quiet, be productive, work with your hands, support yourself, you know, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Again, it comes back to what my wife and I were talking about and I mentioned before. St. Francis of Assisi said, Preach the gospel in season, out of season, and when necessary, use words. In other words, your life should reflect your God. And that's what Paul is telling them to do here. Don't be dependent on anybody. Now, this is also a part of this society back then. There's a patron patron society uh, where a wealthy person would uh, support and pay the bills for somebody else. Um, patronage became a very was a very big deal in the musical world several centuries later where a duke or king or whatever a duchess would actually pay the bills and support a musician and this musician would write music for the duke or the duchess for their events but it would also be free to do whatever they wanted to do but they would live off of the patronage of that wealthy individual Paul is saying here, no to that. The Christian should be de- should not be dependent on anybody. Work with their own hands, be quiet and productive. One of the things that I would do if I were a teacher back then is I would bring them through the Torah, connect the dots concerning Jesus, how to live a moral life like what he just did and he reminded them of, But then the last thing would be what to look for because Jesus dying on the cross was not the last chapter in the world's greatest story ever told. The the Jewish religious people at the time of Jesus got some of it right concerning Messiah. There is very definitely a picture painted in the Old Testament of a conquering Messiah who will come back and reestablish the kingdom of God on earth. There is a conquering Messiah. They missed, however, the intervening chapter where Messiah must come and suffer and die in order to repair the breach between mankind and God. Well, of course, Paul has preached Jesus Christ crucified Raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So 
all that leaves in the story now is the return of the Christ at the end of time when Satan is finally vanquished forever and banished forever. And I kind of get the feeling that he didn't get to finish that part of the instruction because that's what he gets into here. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. In the Greco-Roman culture, when someone died, they believed that there was nothing, cessation of an, uh, existence afterwards, just blank nothingness. So if people died before the Lord returned, does that mean they miss out on what's to come? Jesus gives us hope while we live, but when we die, if we die and there's just nothing, what happens then? And they, of course, they would, there would be much grief and grieving when someone died because, oh, they died before the Lord came back. Because in that culture, when you died, cessation of existence, blankness, nothingness. According to the Lord's word, Paul says, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep, will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's shutting down this thought that that it's over when you die. It's not. Those who die who fall asleep in Christ, they're still very much part of the picture, still very much part of the story. The dead in Christ rise first. And after that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this is kind of cool. This passage has been used to generate several movies and lots of stories. It's called, the, the name for it's called The Rapture. I'm not saying that the rapture is not going to happen. Obviously, something's going to happen because Paul made a pretty big deal about it here. But I have a feeling that there's we're missing some things here if, if we center our lives or our theolo- theology around some of the movies we've watched. The Greek word used here, which lies behind the English translation to meet, as in meet the Lord in the air, was a technical term in the ancient world. It referred to the meeting of a delegation of citizens from a city with an arriving dignitary in order to accord that visitor proper respect and honor by escorting him back to their city. Such processions of leading citizens going out to welcome and accompany a visiting ruler or official back to the city were common in Hellenistic times. This would be something that Paul's readers would be very familiar with. The term apentesis, if I pronounce that right, has the same sense in its two other New Testament occurrences. The wise virgins with the oil-filled lamps go to meet the bridegroom and escort him back to the banquet. Uh, The Christians in Rome walk south to meet Paul in his prison journey and escort him back to the capital city. The picture that Paul presents, therefore, is of the church consisting of deceased, but now resurrected, and living Christians 
meeting the descending Christ in the air and then escorting him back to earth. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right. This is a very cool thought here. Listen close. Though some have called 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the rapture, a secret rapture before, in the middle of, or after seven years of tribulation, there seems to be nothing secret about this event. And see, that's the one thing in the movies that I've read and, and a lot of in some of the theology that I've read is that there's this believers are raptured out in the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye. And the world is puzzled and doesn't understand what just happened. But according to Paul, it's anything but secret. Trumpets, the voice of an archangel, shouts of command, they're not secret. And the context seems to be the final return of the Lord or the last day, according to the Old Testament echoes. Paul's main emphasis is a royal procession in which we will participate. After the procession, we will all be with the Lord forever. Paul's aim is not to speculate about the rapture, but to comfort the Thessalonians who are undergoing persecution and wondering about some of their loved ones who had died. We have misused these verses if all we do is argue about what sort of blueprint is given for the last days. For believers, the final day is to be one not of apprehension, but of anticipation, not of panic, but of peace. There will come a day when the Lord will descend from heaven to shout. There's no doubt. Paul is not being obtuse. And the picture, again, is of a conquering king returning and the people coming out of the city to greet him. The dead in Christ will rise first. There will be a resurrection. There will be a resurrection. And then we who are still alive at that moment will join them in the air to, to bring the Christ back to earth. So there will be an event and it might be a rapture like what they're talking about in those movies. Uh, those movies center around um, a version of the end times called the Great Tribulation. Uh, and we'll be covering that as we go through other uh, Second Thessalonians and eventually when we get to Revelation and some of these other uh, books. But that's just one interpretation it's not necessarily the only interpretation, nor is it necessarily the best interpretation. I'm holding my opinion back for right now, but you need to keep an open mind. The God who has called us, and I don't know if there's a Hebrew name for this, I would like to call him the God who surprises us. I know he's the God who sees me. I know he's the God who knows me. I know he's the God who provides. He's the God who saves. But I would also say that he is the God who surprises. I'm thought again and again, I'm drawn back to the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's uh, series of books. And Aslan is always surprising the Pavenzies, who are the children who are transported back to Aslan for an adventure in whatever storybook you're reading. 
and he's always surprising them. Sometimes they think they know what to expect and then when they get into their adventure, they realize they don't know what to expect at all. Aslan is always on the move. Aslan is always surprising. He's showing up in a surprising fashion many times. That's our God. And I have learned not to lock myself into a uh, set in stone belief on the end times. I'm beginning to realize as I enter my senior citizen years that there's so much I just don't know. And I'm willing to be surprised. This is an interesting chapter. And I loved, I've been wanting to get to this chapter for such a long time. And uh, I'm looking forward to tomorrow's chapter because Paul continues his discussion along these veins. Apparently, this was a big topic of discussion at the Thessalonian church. And again, I get the feeling that maybe this is something Paul didn't have time to finish with them while he was there. So he's doing it in this letter. But regardless, glorious, glorious time in the Bible today. I get so excited realizing that God has everything figured out. He will return. It will be public. There'll be shouts. There'll be trumpets. And those who are dead in Christ rise first and then we will meet them. I may not believe in the rapture of the church in the traditional sense of what my brothers and sisters do. But I'm going to say this. It will be a supernatural event. And I think many of us will be surprised at the glory and the power and the majesty of the moment. Can't wait. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. And I'm out of here.